This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone. Um, before I get into the talk today, I'd, I'd love to know who's first, who's their first time to Jikoji today? Fantastic. Okay. Well, later on in Science and Buddhism, we're going to be having a talk on the book by Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers. So the fact that you don't know very many people here or you might feel like a stranger, it's exactly what we're going to be talking about later on. And I'm going to incorporate a little bit of that into my talk today. Um, let's start with a round of names just so that we can start the the, I, the process of maybe getting a name to a face. I'm Jen. I'm Nico. Arsala. Nasrin. Nina. Ilya. Saiho. Pamela. Mark. Jeffrey. Victoria. Chuck. Alex. Mike. Asan. John. John. Cliff. And your name back there? Paul. Paul, nice to meet you. Welcome today. Um, I'd like to start off with uh, something from the Coben's Heart Sutra book that we have on karma, because I feel that it relates wonderfully to this discussion that we'll be having and an ongoing discussion even later after this talk. Uh, it's on karma. And uh, he says, the past can never be the same as the present, but in karma consciousness, our mind always works. That is how I was. This is how I'm supposed to be, how I will be. That is how our mind consciousness goes, supporting ourself. When you have separation, you might say, I am bothered by you. You feel you are bothered by someone, but you are never bothered by someone. A red rose is not red. That is, it has no such red color. Separation is like that. In the 20th century, we see perfect freedom. And there is perfect freedom, but we still think we are not free. That is a very strange thing. We see someone suffering from the outside, so we feel we're not free. Actually, our karma consciousness is not free. When you see a dying person, they are not different from you, so you are not free from them. But if they die, they are freed from your karma consciousness. So talking to strangers, um, it's something that we're told as a, a young person, don't talk to strangers because they might do X, Y, Z, or strangers are this, or strangers are that. And as we get older, we realize that sometimes we want to get to know some strangers better. Or many of our friends started off as somebody we didn't know, and then somehow we became to, to know them, and then sometimes Ourself. We are a stranger to ourselves in certain situations that happen and come. And um, this book by Malcolm Gladwell that we're going to go over later today brings up some really interesting points about our ideas about strangers and certain assumptions that we make without really questioning them, without really maybe thinking about it more than we thought. Um, it's a controversial book, and I apologize in advance because it does go over some very strong subjects. And I'm going to lightly cover some of them now. And I apologize if in any way that it's offensive. Um, that's not my intention to necessarily offend. But my intention with this talk is to open a discussion. How do we talk to people we don't know? How do we bring up subjects that are uncomfortable? How do we not offend people, yet talk about things that need to be talked about, that need to be discussed? 
how do we, when we're a part of a discussion or somebody brings up something, we just happen to be there and somebody brings up something that might bring up a, a huge suitcase of, of items, relationships, experiences that you may have attached to it. How do we stay open with that without immediately shutting down? Um, many years ago at Jokoji, we did a, a book study on uh, a book by Uchiyama called Opening the Hand of Thought. And in it, one of the premises is that your mind works better when it's open. It's like an umbrella, right? The umbrella works better if it's open. That's how it can protect you from the rain. The mind is very similar. If the mind is closed, and it's like the hand of thought that's really clenched, how do you let new stuff in? How do you let new people in? It's the same with our heart, right? If you come everywhere you go with a closed heart, well, how does anybody going to get in there, and including the good stuff? So um, when we close ourselves off to things that are uncomfortable and trying, we're also closing ourselves off to the good stuff. And um, you know, as I look around this room, I see, you know, men, women, boys, girls, and uh, I, I don't see as much diversity as maybe, as maybe we could if we were at a different place in a different time. And um, one of the examples I want to show you from this book is something that I think is really important for us as people to um, look at. And it's a very charged subject. Um, let's see if our internet is working enough. This is a routine traffic stop. Um, it was done in uh, 2015, and it was a woman by the name of Sandra Bland. Um, I don't know if this is going to be visible to you, but I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to be able to hear it. Um, it's probably going to be a good idea if this is something that you're interested in. You might want to YouTube it later because they show a picture. This is a, a woman who was stopped by a state trooper. And it shows the video of what the trooper's cam saw and, and what she recorded on her cell phone that you couldn't see from the trooper's cam. And um, let's get into this. It's about a minute and a half. So we lost it, but you get a pretty good idea that the situation was escalating. And um, it goes on for a little bit while longer. Eventually the state trooper calls in for backup. Backup comes. The woman is uh, thrown on the ground, basically handcuffed and brought to jail. Um, three days later, they found her hanging in her jail cell. Um, she, it looked like an apparent suicide. Um, this woman had just relocated to Texas from uh, Chicago area and was starting a new job at a university. The police cam caught her coming out of the university parking lot. She was going to go get some food to, um, you know, to stock up before, you know, going back to work. And obviously with a situation with a state trooper on her record, that, that affected her potential for the job. Um, she also had a series of tickets before that cost her a lot of money, so she had a lot of outstanding debt from being stopped by police officers in the past. Um, Sandra Bland was a black woman, um, and this is not something that is an unusual thing for a person of color to be stopped because, you know, they look suspicious. Now, it's not going to be, this talk is not just about um, this particular situation. It's a really, I mean, we could probably do a series of talks just on the injustice of profiling and, um, you know, just an idea about a stranger. 
um, in this book, they actually go into some of the police practices in Kansas City. And what they found is that um, if they looked at crime, if you look at a city, there were certain places that there was more crime and there were certain places where there wasn't a lot of crime. And for a while, what they tried to do was they tried to patrol everywhere. And then they, when they started mapping out this, they noticed that, okay, there's a certain place and in fact, um, in Kansas City, there was like a two-block sort of radius. So then they started patrolling a lot more there. And, you know, obviously the, they got a lot more people doing that. And um, they eventually moved it to uh, Minneapolis was one of the, the first places where they, they tried mapping out the crime and, um, you know, asking people, stopping people that might have looked suspicious. So they were looking for things like not signaling, um, lights that were out, you know, all sorts of like, you know, things that, that, that would be suspicious. And they started uh, following that. They also did a program where they were looking for guns and trying to get people to turn in guns because they thought that there was this correlation between these high crime areas and guns. And um, while this was in Texas, which was far away from it, the police practices that go behind it, you know, where the police is asking her, well, you know, where are you going? How long have you been here? Asking for information, looking for sus suspicious behavior. And um, you might notice if you've been stopped recently that a police officer might try to ask you questions and your response is gonna depend hopefully on your read of the situation, but hopefully also you're gonna try to uh, communicate in a way that maybe this didn't model very well for us today. Um, the thing is, though, when we sort of look at strangers, we see a state trooper with a hat and the uniform, we have a certain expectation about how that person is going to act and respond. Um, we go to a hospital and we see a doctor in a white coat. We have certain expectations about, well, that doctor must have gone through all this stuff. Um, a teacher, you know, we go to school at college, we expect that the teacher that's leading the class you know, somebody's vetted them, somebody's looked at them. So we have all these ideas about strangers and, and somebody in a uniform we might not think so much of as a stranger because we have this idea of what this uniform, the clothes that they're wearing, um, says about them. So um, while we could talk about how this woman's death could have been prevented, I want to move into a slightly different direction with this. And um, one of the, the things about talking to strangers is we kind of expect that somebody like a judge or a police officer or, or even somebody who's in like the intelligence agency, somebody in the CIA who's working with spies, they might have a better idea of how do you know when somebody's being honest and how do you know when somebody's being dishonest. And, um, they found that when they did these studies, they did a computer study where they had a computer go through, I think it was like 500,000 different records, and they compared it to some judges. And they found that um, with some very long and sort of, you know, computer sort of um, algorithms they, they put through, they found out that these judges didn't really do that great of a job of um, figuring out who was going to reoffend and uh, who wasn't. You know, um, they found that, that judges, they changed. So there was a lot of variables in it. It wasn't just like one judge did horribly on this. It was, they found that, you know, certain judges, they wanted to see the person that they were uh, going to be potentially sentencing and, and changing their life. For judges, they felt that that was really an important thing to see a person and see how they, they act and react. And um, what's interesting about it is when they compared what the computers did and they compared what the judges did, and these aren't judges that were just like on the bench for like a year or so. This is people with like 15, 20, 25 years of experience. They found that the judges let about... 52% of the, the people that were going to recommit, they let them go. And the computer program, they, they captured like 90% of like the top reoffenders were in, in sort of this list. And, and I'm not making the argument that computers are better. We don't want to take out the human element. 
my point in this is that people who have a lot of experience with, with crime and deception and sort of like knowing what to look for, they're wrong. You know, and in some cases, dead wrong. You know, Sandra Bland isn't an example of somebody, you know, yeah, she had been, you know, in some traffic stops like that before. And, you know, the situation's a little bit different. But for two strangers just meeting, you realize that uh, a situation between somebody who's a trained professional and somebody who's been stopped over and over, there's, there's fuel in that. There's fuel for this. So if somebody who's a judge with 25 years of experience or more, or lawyers or, or whoever are judging these are this bad, how can we expect when we are in a situation with a stranger, how can we expect to do any better than that? You know, we have this idea of uh, transparency, and this is one of the things, one of the examples that Malcolm Gladwell uses in the book is how uh, he takes a Friends episode. And he says, if you watch a Friends episode, without the sound, even if you don't speak the language, you can kind of get an idea of what's going on. And our media trains us to expect that, like, this is a surprised face, or this is a sad face, or, oh, I'm angry. You know? And when they actually do studies on it, um, they find that, no, it's not as universal as, as Western mind might want to think it is. You know? And... Um, they actually did a study on, um, they took pictures of different expressions. There are six different sort of uh, things that they, they took a picture of. And let me see if I can find the exact six. And they also did sort of a neutral face. And what was interesting about it was um, they thought like, okay, anywhere in the world, things like happy, sad, angry, scared, disgusted, would be pretty universal. And they wanted to test it out. So what they did is they went to uh, Madrid and they tested it out. And, and the people in Madrid, like they got it, you know, they're, they're, they kind of answered it the way that they expected it would. And I mean, it was like, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the figures was like 98%, you know, happy, smiling, um, happiness. They all figured out happiness. 98% figured sadness. 91 figured out the anger face. 93 figured out fear, 83 figured out disgust. But when they brought the same pictures to a tribe that didn't have the media that we have, you know, but had a very uh, complex um, language that could explain feelings and language, and they, they thought they would do it, the numbers dropped. So like happiness, these people saw a picture of what they thought was happily smiling, 58%. Uh, sadness, Sad pouting, 46%. You know, anger, 7%. You would think anger would be kind of one of those easy ones to read, you know, and it's showing that no, uh-uh. Fear, 31%. You know, 25%, 11%. And they took these people. So in some ways, our media is kind of setting us up for this, or we're expecting like what we see every day to kind of be modeling this behavior for us. You know, in other ways, we're seeing like, wow, like we have somebody that's, you know, not from around here or hasn't been here. Wow, like, you know, there might be some, some lack of communication that's happening there. Something's missing from that, you know. Uh, it's kind of frightening, you know. You think that you could walk anywhere and you'd be able to read the signs, but you can't. Um, and that's a little bit frightening, you know? And if we look in our culture today, you know, look at some of the things that the media is projecting, and even, too, with our own political system right now. Like, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the news today, but this whole idea of immigration as being a scary thing to allow people into our country and, oh, they're going to steal our jobs and they're bad people, they're going to commit crime and all this you know, the gun violence that we've got going on. Um, all of these really scary things that strangers are doing. Um, there's a different study in here. It's a little bit lighter. But they, uh, they have people take, like, a, a couple of words. And what they want to do is that you fill in the words. You know, it might be starting with, like, a, a list of words. And then you would ask the person, like, okay, do those words fit you? So um, like one of the things was uh, you have the first two letters are GL and you have to fill in the last two letters. 
So this author, he picked glum. A couple other ones, uh, hater, scare, attack. They were just like random words that came to this person's mind when um, given sort of a choice. Now, when the person themselves was asked, do those words fit you? They're like, no, uh-uh, it was random. You know, it was, it was just words that came to my mind. But the same people, when they were told about a stranger whose list of words were X, Y, and Z, they're like, oh, wow, well, this person has, you know, uh, uh, here's what it, he doesn't seem to read much. Since the natural completion of B dash dash K would be book, Beak seems rather random and might indicate deliberate unfocus of mind. I get the feeling that whoever did this is a pretty vain but basically nice guy. So these people are asked questions about themselves and they felt like it didn't apply to them. But when asked about a complete stranger, immediately it was rushed to judgment and oh well, they know the stranger better than the stranger knows themselves. And, and we tend to do that as people. I think part of it is a, a survival mechanism. Part of it is uh, how we get along, maybe in groups where we learn to sort of uh, fit in versus, you know, stick out too much. Um, another study kind of brings us back to that 54% number, and it's, it's in relation to a thing called default to truth. Many of us, when we walk around and we see an inconsistency in somebody's story, most of us are going to, you know, kind of overlook it, and we're going to say, oh, well, that person's basically honest. Most of us do that. Um, but they, they found that when they compare it to the truth versus the lies, that they found that, yeah, you can kind of tell when somebody's being honest. As long as that person matches what your idea of honest behavior is. And they found that it's when the mismatch happens that's when the problems start. One of the cases that they use in point is this woman named Amanda Knox, who was a pretty big case a while ago. It was in, in um, Italy, I believe. And um, this woman went to jail for murdering her roommate, even though she didn't actually murder her roommate. She went to jail for five years. People, the media were saying how they were like looking at things like, oh, she was shopping for underwear, you know, the, the day after this happened and seeing how guilty she looked because, you know, hey, she's doing this, you know, she's doing, you know, these, these things. And, um, you know, they found out later that this woman didn't actually commit the crime. You know, the reason why she was shopping for clothing was because, you know, her apartment was now a crime scene and uh, she needed clothes. She didn't have any clothes, you know, and, um, you know, he, this book doesn't really go into the whole idea of the media sort of forming our perceptions, but the media does form our perceptions. I mean, if you go back to the, the political s situation that we've got going on, even now with the news, and I, I try to avoid watching media. I'm really glad at Jokoji we don't have a TV because uh, I find that I get really drained by watching it, and I made the mistake of turning on the news this week to see sort of like what's the you know, what is everybody talking about? And with the whole uh, Trump situation right now, we've got certain people that are very much, yes, hey, he's doing the right thing. And people are like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Like, this is injustice. This is, you know, send these people to jail, please. You know, we've got this media and, and it's not enough to be able to say, oh, that's fake news. You know, at what point do we, uh, what point do we say, no, that just doesn't feel right? You know, what, how do we do the research to get beyond this idea of, oh, well, because he said it, it's a lie, you know, or because this person said it, it's the truth, you know, or because we don't know them, we're suspicious, or because we do know them, we don't question it. You know, a lot of these um, formulations are based sort of on this, this default to truth thing that we naturally have. You know, um, one of the, the examples that are in this uh, book is there's a guy named Bertie Madoff who was uh, a very big uh, con artist, basically. Around the world, he, he stole billions of dollars from people that he convinced that he was, had some sort of system that could make them money. And um, a few years into it, there was actually this man who brought it to the attention of the people who it should be brought to the attention to. And at that point, it was only like a, 
a seven, uh, I think it was like a seven million or maybe a seven billion dollar con at that time. And uh, people didn't believe him. You know, this guy was super suspicious. You know, the guy is on record of saying whenever he went to a doctor, you know, he always told them that, well, you know, 40% of this goes towards malpractice. And he was just so suspicious. So there's part of us as people that we, we don't trust somebody that's too suspicious either. You know, we want to think that everybody's honest and good. And, you know, that person's a little too suspicious for, for, my, for my taste. Well, turns out this guy was right. You know, and like $50 billion later, a lot of people realized, oh my gosh, you know, this guy had been telling them all along. There's other examples in this book. Um, one of the most interesting one is um, how the, the in intelligence agencies, there was a lot of stuff going on in Cuba. And um, there was this famous woman spy who was working for the United States, and they thought that she was uh, pretty amazing. They called her the Queen of Cuba because, you know, they felt that she was giving them all this good information. And they found out that from the very first day she started in her illustrious career, she was actually working for Cuba as a double agent. And um, there's some interviews of her supervisor who said that, oh, well, yeah, there, was, there were red flags. You know how it's easier when you look back in hindsight and you say, oh, well, that was a little suspicious. You know, there was a situation where a, a plane got shot down over Cuban space, uh, airspace, and it was a really big deal. And uh, they looked into, okay, well, isn't it kind of ironic that there was some Cuban official that happened to, to be on American soil and they could talk to the media, like, within a day of this thing happening that hadn't happened ever before. And they found out that this woman, this spy, actually set up the meeting between these people. And the meeting obviously got set up like a month and a half before. So it was kind of a planned, you know, especially in hindsight, it looks like it was a planned um, attack. And um, it still took them four years after that situation happened to, to catch this woman, to realize that this woman actually wasn't who they thought that she was. Um, it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, in hindsight, we can look back and we can say, oh, there was all this stuff, but when they're in it, I mean, this woman, so there's this national tragedy that's happened, and uh, this woman had a, a strange phone call that she got pulled out of the room, and everybody that was working on the case thought it was odd that this went, where'd she go? And they found out that, um, she had to kind of deliver her message, her, her information that she'd been gathering about, okay, who was there, who reacted, you know, and she said that she just had to step out for, like, food, you know, that like she, she had an allergy to the stuff that was in the vending machine, and, you know, kind of, a, kind of a strange story. And then it's just really interesting to hear sort of in hindsight how the, the guy is, you know, justifying that, um, that he was really wrong, you know, and that... Um, a lot of their spies were compromised because they were so wrong. And I don't want to make the intelligence community look bad and, you know, um, you know, especially too with the stuff that we're hearing from some of the whistleblowers like Edward Snowden and um, some of these other things that we're finding about that our government is also kind of uh, playing a part in and um, this sort of nasty, nasty business about like information collecting and um, you know that your devices are listening to you saying these, these keywords and you know like we wanna trust that our government is looking out for us and, and doing the right thing and, and uh, it's frightening, you know? We, we're ascribing all of these things to strangers that we don't know based on our feeling of maybe what we think that we would do if we were in that position, or we hope that we would do in that position. And, um, you know, it's just really kind of frightening. Um, how do we live in a world where we want to trust and we want to believe the good in people? But we also have these really terrible things that can happen, you know, um, unexpected, you know. Um, school shootings, you know. My niece and my nephew are 
in third grade and kindergarten, and they have to do drills uh, to get underneath their desk in case they have a shooter come into their classroom. What kind of world is that in America, you know, in, in the United States? Um, how do we talk about that, you know? I'm just giving you some very vague examples, but when we bring it home to something like that, and, you know, many of you probably have kids or, you know, have, or you guys are kids. I can't imagine having to, to go into school and have to know about this kind of stuff and be worried that it's not a safe place for you. That, that hurts me as an adult to think that it's gotten to be that situation, you know, and we want to say maybe not here, but, but it could be anywhere. Um, how do we talk about this kind of stuff with people, you know, that we just met? You know, you walked into a Zen center today, and if it was your first time here, you might not have been used to people walking around, uh, not talking, maybe being kind of silent and quiet. You know, in another situation, how do you know that that person's not depressed? How do you know that that person isn't a threat to you? You know, we want to think that coming to a temple is a safe space, but, but uh, a kid going to school isn't a safe space anymore. Um, about a year ago, there was a, a shooting in a yoga studio. Somebody brought a gun and got upset and, and hurt a lot of people, killed people. How do, we, how do we cope with that, you know? And I think part of it, bringing it back to the Buddhism thing, because, I mean, really, we could give you hours and hours and hours and days of examples of some of the terrible things that are happening <coughs> under our watch in this world. How do we deal with it? You know, how do we stay open when somebody wants to keep talking about something and we've had enough? How do we have a good boundary with that? How do we keep the communication open so that we can discuss things, so that that, that kid that's afraid to go into their school will still talk to us? You know, that we're not going to get so upset that, uh, you know, they go, oh, well, that person's not a safe person. I can't talk to them about that. You know, and we keep all this stuff in. And maybe, you know, Maybe the person that they're worried about is a threat. Maybe that person's just really depressed, you know? Um, this talking to stranger books goes into suicide, too, and depression, and how um, something like the Golden Gate Bridge, now they have the suicide barrier on it, but for many, many years, uh, that was a place where people went to, to end things. And um, with suicide, they found out that there's this thing called coupling, where it's not just tied to, hey, I'm going to do this, I'm going to, it's tied to the place, you know? It's not just um, that this person's going to do it, and if they can't do it at the Golden Gate Bridge, they're going to find somewhere else to do it. They found that that's not true. Just like crime was tied to certain places, certain triggers that happen, you know? Uh, what if we learn how to talk to people and instead of triggering them, we learn how to recognize, hey, this person needs me to listen to them. They don't need me to judge them. You know, how do we do that? You know, even mentioning the words that I've mentioned today could be very troubling and triggering for people. You know, um, and I don't know how scientific it is. You know, I don't know that uh, there's so much that I don't know. Mike? Jen, is, it, is this a coupling phenomenon? Does that have to do with positive events as well as negative events? Yes. Yes. So people associate or have a preconception of a certain place in conjunction with a certain experience? Yeah. And they only have that experience not necessarily that they only have it, but on something like suicide, it's usually something where uh, it's a decision that maybe they were in a bad place and because they were successful, because they jumped off of the bridge, that they, they didn't have a chance to realize that maybe there was another way to handle that issue. Um, one of the correlations they draw in this book is um, back in England when uh, people had regular gas stoves that um, they found that when during wartime, suicide actually was lower than what it was during times of plenty and times of good. And then when they had financial sort of crises happen, it should be like a roller coaster, sort of like if you plot out sort of like the heights of 
of these things happening and, and sort of like the low points. And I mean, wartime, you know, you've got a lot more people counting on you. If you're one of the people at home, you know, while your husband or whoever is off, you know, there's, there's a lot more sort of riding on you versus maybe not feeling that you're important or what does it matter or, or anything. But the, um, the coupling phenomena, along with the crime, they found that too, um, when they patrolled like certain areas for like, you know, prostitution and other sort of like violence, that the people didn't just move to other areas like they thought that they might. They, they actually interviewed some of these people and they thought, well, no, I, I can't go there because that's not my place. I could get killed if I go there. You know, talking about, um, you know, people that have like certain street areas that they frequent. Yeah. Position. Yeah. Like you're a, you're a boss or you're a janitor. So those are all coupled with this coupling, right? Right. They're all coupled with a certain kind of preconception of, of, of what? Of well, your idea of what that role is. This book goes more into some of the, the senior sort of couplings, you know, with um, women that might be you know, uh, frequenting certain areas late at night, you know, and looking for company or, you know, I'm trying to be somewhat politically correct because we do have kids in this room today. But um, they're talking more about like that and they interviewed some of these women and they were like, oh no, that's not my place. You know, that's, I'm afraid that I go to this other area and there's drugs or whatever. So it's like they have their sort of set of what they feel safe within and then if you move them out of that space, you know, it changes. You know, um, I think the idea of, of coupling really applies to strangers, though, because, you know, obviously we have to make certain assumptions just to, you know, when we go to the grocery store and the person hands us our change back, we're assuming that they're giving us the change that we deserve. We're not necessarily checking the math every time. Maybe at a restaurant when you have time, when you get a bill, you might, you know, check it to make sure that, you know, you weren't, there aren't things on your bill that shouldn't be there. But for the most part, we trust these people that are strangers. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting phenomena. You know, I'm not trying to get too heavy or dark or whatever, you know, but um, in the world that we live in today, uh, we have to start being able to talk to people that we might not normally talk to. What time do we have? It's uh, 20 after. Okay. So, um, there's a lot more information in this book, and I, I do plan on covering more of it later on when we go into um, the science and Buddhism part and maybe get into some of more of the um, less child-friendly things. Um, I would like to open it up if you guys have questions or, I don't know, maybe any concerns. You know, what do you want to talk about today? How do we, how do we talk to each other? Yes. Okay. I just got to find that spot again. The past can never be the same as the present, but in karma consciousness, our mind always works. That is how I was. This is how I'm supposed to be, how I will be. That is how our mind consciousness goes, supporting ourself. When you have separation, you might say, I'm bothered by you. You feel you are bothered by someone, but you are never bothered by someone. A red rose is not red. That is, it is no such red color. Separation is like that. In the 20th century, we seek perfect freedom, and there is a perfect freedom, but we still think that we are not free. That is a very strange thing. We see someone suffering from the outside, so we feel we are not free. Actually, our karma consciousness is not free. When you see a dying person, they are not different from you, so you are not free from them. But if they die, they are freed from your karma consciousness. Uh, later on, he says, karma consciousness is very heavy because the reality of your life is so heavy. A woman saw her friend falling from a cliff. 
She carries this woman's life because she died in her sight, so she lives with her. She saw the fall, so she has to work on it. If she ignored it, she'd be ignoring herself. At this point, I, this body, has never had the experience of killing human life. But if you speak of a murderer, I begin to feel that I'm a murderer. And I am that murderer's mother, too. What is difficult is how the people who are left perceive an occasion. If the mother can save the life of her dead son, the murder is over, it drops off. Murder continues because of the mother's attachment to her dead son, which means freed mind has to be in the mother's mind and not in the dead son. This is how the son and the mother live together. The murderer's life bears the suffering because one was born as, as an unusual human body and mind. He lives in the completely different world, staying among people. So we're in this room today, and it's a nice, cool fall day. Uh, we've got lots of happy, smiling faces. And yet, we've got all these concerns that are outside of this, this sacred space for us to walk into, walk into however we're going to walk into. Um, how are you in this moment? We brought up some challenging subjects, and they might have been triggering. I know I feel triggered a lot these days. I read um, some of the book, and my question is, um, how does our meditation practice help us in this uh, unconscious bias to just take people at face value? which is a lot of, you know, things like, well, they met Hitler, and, you know, he, he shook his hand twice, and so, well, I trusted him, of course. Well, that was a bit of a mistake. <laughs> yeah. I think our practice by uh, taking the time to sit, I think it helps us to pay more attention when we are interacting with people and listening. Um, I think, too, just to kind of deal with some of the hubbub of, you know, whatever kind of experience, you know, like watching the news today, you know, and seeing, oh, these people are arguing this and that, and just to kind of go, you know what, I'm going to turn this off and I'm going to sit. And there are certain elements about it where I might notice, wow, I feel, wow, like part of me doesn't want to believe that person. Part of me doesn't want to believe that's true. And then there's that part that, that, wow, that kind of resonates with something that, you know, is in my body. What is that? To be able to ask that question. Is that because you're raising your awareness? Because what I notice a lot of things, it's like, well, there was a little clue I should have picked, like the Cuban lady, like little things. Like, you know, when I said that to her, she just sat there and didn't say anything. Anybody else would be morally offended. How dare you accuse me of that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily rising you know, uh, awareness. I think it's paying attention, you know? I mean, I would like to think that if I'm actually in a really high-frequency place and if, you know, that these things wouldn't happen, you know? Like if we're in a high-frequency place where people are loving each other and respecting each other's differences, you know, why does that kind of stuff need to happen or why did it happen, you know? I wasn't there, so it's not my experience, you know? A lot of what you say resonate, and <clears throat> I'm not born in this country. I travel a lot in the world, and I come from a place that is very safe in heaven, which is called Switzerland. And when I walk in the streets, I was walking in the streets of New York 25 years ago at night in a place that I didn't know. And the next day when I shared my experience, I said, hey, I walked there. Everyone was shocked. Why could you? How could you? It's dangerous. I said, no, it wasn't. Because I didn't feel a frightened, judged, or endangered. So why it is a little bit difficult sometimes to hear all what you're saying, I really want to come back to what you said. Is it such a mind? Or is it such a mind? 
if I'm open and curious, and I know that what I see in the world is not what is, but that I have a maybe wide or narrow perspective, but yet I don't have all the truth, it will allow me to stay alert in my perception. So you said often today, I know or you know, and you also said it's frightening. I'm not resonating with I know. I'm not resonating with I'm frightening. I'm resonating with <coughs> it is. And I'm open to ask my heart how I shall live. that if we apply, we can resolve most of our communication issues. And that's the famous saying of treat others the way you want to be treated and treat yourself the way you treat other people. That's awesome. Um, last year, around the election time, um, at Floating Zendo, we were sitting every Tuesday and some Saturdays, and a lot of people were so concerned. There was a lot of anger, there was a lot of um, fright and fears and fright, fright, fear, I guess, I don't know how to say it in English, but a lot of frightened people who were bringing up the topics of how do we deal with all of this crime, how do we deal with all of this controversy and conflicts in the world. Um, and Angie um, was on multiple occasions um, what she, the message that she gave, which put me personally at ease, and I'm, uh, at least for now, no longer losing my balance over this, um, everything that's happening in the world, was that there is so much good happening that we have no idea about. If there's 10 people dying, there's probably 25 people being born. If we look at um, the age, how people were dying around 30 or 35 years old, now we have people living up to 100. Uh, people who didn't have food, electricity. There is so much that we have evolved through life. There was so much more rape. There was so much more. There is no perfection because we're human beings, and our perception from our senses is very limited. But um, I really resonated with what you said because there's 360 degrees perspective. All I can see is as far as my eyes go, as far as my ears hear, and as far as the media tells me, whether it's in this country or other countries. I'm from Iran, so it's a country that um, I think most people know what's happening in it and how much pressure people are under and how much, how much it's happening. But still, when I go there, I see that people are living and people are doing okay. So what Angie's message to me was, she said, we each have a frequency, exactly like what you said. She said, if you are constantly angry, and if you're constantly mad at the world, and if you're constantly thinking everything is going wrong, you are actually adding to that, because your frequency is so low that you're not doing anything good. The best thing we can do is if each individual would work on themselves to just do the right thing and to see both sides of the equation, perhaps we could have more of a balance and maybe raise our own frequency. Which brought me to that sutra we have. It says, I, I don't have it memorized, but it says, the tiny is as vast as the uh, infinite, and the infinite is as small as the tiny. And then it goes into, when you look at the universe as a whole, everything is completely okay the way it is. It is when we zoom in and we see a limited perspective that we are this, like, judgments, all of these judgments, the intelligence agency, the troops, the crimes, the Muslims, this, that, like there's no generalization. We don't have enough data points to be able to, I don't have enough data points to draw those conclusions. So it sort of put me at ease and set me free in a way that I'm no longer crying because something is happening in my country or because I just know that there's good and bad everywhere. I have to find a place where I can have a balance and I can hopefully have a positive impact and live with that. I know that as a whole, the balance would happen. If there's a yin and the yang, we gotta have that tower at some point, but we just can't see enough of it. So in a, in a way, I think um, that's the best way to communicate with people. 
because if we are honest with ourselves and we're not full of these judgments, whether it's good or bad, we will be able to see more clearly. And that's to Angie, so thanks to her, I feel at much more ease. I'm, uh, I feel more comfortable talking to people. I'm no longer mad at political issues, and I just know that there is a game and people play it. You have to do your best with every step. Like in Kenhen, she says, when you put one foot in front of the other, there is no left and right. You just keep moving forward, but with the right pace. And that has helped me to connect with people. I went to New York. I lived there for 15 years. I moved to California four years ago. And I've been coming here a lot. I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of peace and quiet in California. I was a little bit scared of what's going to happen. And when I went there, it is louder than ever. It is uh, maybe I'm more unsafe than ever. It is more population. But I was at such a peace. I didn't hear the noise. That it wasn't bothering me, I didn't see crime, I didn't see, I felt sort of the same way as here. And in a coffee shop, a guy asked me, we were just having a conversation, he said, so are you happier in California or in New York? It made me think, and for a second I said, maybe for the first time in my life, I can say I carry the happiness within me with me. So it's inside of me, it's not outside. So in New York and in California, in a way I know our external, uh, circumstances affect us a lot, but sitting and um, learning to be quiet and accept what is has taught me and has helped me, and it's not an absolute, it's constantly working on it, and I fall off and constantly lose balance and come back, but it has helped me cope with this much better. And thank you for the talk. It was wonderful. <laughs> You guys ready for some lunch? Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.